A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back to the Experiential Theology Podcast. This is episode 21. Today we are devoting this episode to the work of Albert Schweitzer. He is an influential theologian and biblical scholar uh, who is most famous for the book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. That is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, let me talk about the nature of this episode. In this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to share extended quotes from the last two chapters of the book, I believe chapters 19 and 20, in the hope that it will intrigue you and it will motivate you to just read the entire work. It is an absolute must for anyone who really wants to know what's going on with the New Testament studies and anyone who wants to understand uh, what's going on in theology today. Extremely, extremely important, absolutely essential reading. Uh, I'm not sure when I first read it at this point. I think I read it maybe three, uh, actually I have my copy here. It says, I read it on November 3rd, 2018. And I actually had a copy of this as a PDF though, for maybe five, six, seven years before. And I always kept saying, I'm going to read this one day. I'm going to read this one day because I kept reading books that interacted with, with his work. And I knew that it was crucial reading, but it wasn't until I became friends with Ben that he encouraged me to finally read it. I read it and it was a transformational experience for me. It really was. I read it maybe in two, three days. I, I read as much as I could and I just couldn't put the book down. It is a thriller. It, I don't want to say more. It, it is a thriller. It, it's amazing. It'll blow your mind away. Absolutely will blow your mind away. So anyhow, I trust that the quotes that we'll be sharing and commenting on will prove that to you. But before we begin, Ben, anything else that we should add about Albert Schweitzer? Albert Schweitzer's he actually has a, a autobiography. I think it's called Out of My Life and Thought. And mm -hmm. I, uh, I read Albert Schweitzer's Quest of the Historical Jesus. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think that I was working on my master's thesis at the time in theology. And I kind of just had to stop and find a way to incorporate what I had just read into that thesis because <laughs> it sort of changed my perspective in a big way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went... I think I remember reading his book out of my life and thought just trying to get trying to get something more out of him and he, in that book he describes his life and his studies his new testament studies his medical studies his his decision to become a a doctor and a doctor um like a, a doctor in Africa as opposed to in Europe and and uh and sort of decisions about um like navigating through the world during the world wars um yeah and so he's a super fascinating person i think he's so he's also a musician and so he, he he sort of reached excellence in music theology and medicine 
uh, very fascinating and as well-rounded as they get, um, a very fascinating and well-rounded individual. As far as the, the book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus goes, in a way, uh, I think it's not, it's not wrong to say that this book revolutionized the topic of historical Jesus studies when it came out in the, in the early 20th century. And that everybody after this book, if they wanted to have anything to say, they had to respond to this book uh, up until the present, honestly. Mm -hmm. So th there's a lot of details. Uh, if I took a class on Christology a few years ago and we talked about the various different quests for the historical Jesus, not to be confused with the quest of the historical Jesus, which is the title of this book, but the quest of scholars looking for a good portrait of the historical Jesus. And in a, in a nutshell, Albert Schweitzer described what everyone had done before him and closed the door on that approach completely. And then new approaches have emerged since, but, but, I, but he had the last word on the, on the, on, in his day on this topic for, for searching for portraits of the historical Jesus. So now this is, a, we're interested in experiential theology. And I think that for many people, Albert Schweitzer can be a scary author because he's maybe shaking the foundations of what we think we know about Jesus and what we think is valuable in Jesus. But, but rest assured, if experiential theology uh, is something, if you've come to value that, maybe listening to our podcast or for yourself, uh, nothing of value is lost in reading Albert Schweitzer. Like the book ends, the last paragraph of the book, we'll read it to you. He talks about how the only real way that we can know this Jesus is at the level of obedience and empowerment and the experience of the Christian life. So, so as much as he may seem like a, like a deconstructor, he actually has something quite constructive to say, and he more or less acted out, acted on it with his own life and his choices of how to spend his, his years and his strength. So, so let's just, I'll say that as well. Yes. So, you know, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians, they have uh, a huge collection of saints, right? Uh, being Protestants, we really don't have saints, to be honest. But I think we can say that he is, he is a modern day saint that we can really learn from and imitate. So, yes. Well, let's begin. Why don't you start with the first quote here? Okay. Uh, our quotes, they're coming from chapter 19 and 20, the last two chapters of the book. Uh, and uh, in this modern internet age, you can control F if you want to find them. I don't have the page numbers on me. So let me, let's get the first quote going. Um, so Schweitzer writes, without its intense eschatological hope, the gospel would have perished from the earth, crushed by the weight of historic catastrophes. But as it was, by the mighty power of evoking faith, which lay in it, eschatology made good in the darkest times Jesus sayings about the imperishability of his words and died as soon as these sayings had brought forth new life upon a new soil. So eschatology is something we're going to be talking about today in this context. And uh, this passage makes me wonder or makes me want to ask, why do we even know the name of Jesus today um after all this time why didn't his name just vanish from the earth why is christianity alive 
And why wasn't it, why didn't it just perish immediately? Uh, how has this influence come down to us? Yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts about this before I react to this uh, passage? No, but I mean, I I agree with his judgment. I think uh, eschatology is of the is of the essence to Christian thought, and I think we would do well to remember that. So he's describing in this passage the gospel as something that has an intense eschatological hope. We'll talk in more detail about what eschatology is, but essentially the dilemma that we're having, that we're going to see as we read the quotes ahead, is that eschatology, or sort of a world picture, an expectation of what God will do in history and in the world, um, that intense eschatological hope is what gave Christianity and and Jesus and the name of Jesus staying power on the world stage and and that brought it and, and that brought it down to us and yet the eschatology of the New Testament the eschatology of the man Jesus the historical Jesus is not something that we can actually carry forward into the present this is the problem is that we know the name of Jesus because of the intense eschatological hope that he had and that his followers had and yet we cannot simply adopt that eschatology ourselves. This is the dilemma that Schweitzer is going to make clear to us uh, as we keep reading. Yeah. Okay, let me read the second quote. So, quote, The tragedy does not consist in the modification of primitive Christianity by eschatology, but in the fate of eschatology itself which has preserved for us all, all that is most precious in Jesus, but must itself wither because he died upon the cross with a loud cry, despairing of bringing in the new heaven and the new earth. That is the real tragedy. And not a tragedy to be dismissed with a theologian's sigh, but a liberating and life-giving influence like every great tragedy. For in its death pangs, eschatology bore to the Greek genius a wonder child, the mystic, sensuous, early Christian doctrine of immortality, and consecrated Christianity as the religion of immortality to take the place of the lowly dying civilization of the ancient world. Yes, so this, the, the, the previous quote before the one that you just read, I, I was thinking, I was saying that we cannot bring the eschatology into the into the present, and and I was thinking that a listener might think, oh, you could if you just had enough faith, but this passage puts that puts an end to that, because even Jesus himself despaired of this eschatology. Uh, we have here a description of of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, this is what Schweitzer is describing here, is that. When Jesus upon the cross is God forsaken and feels God forsaken, those hopes that he had, the eschatology that he had, are being are being crushed. So, like, how, how are we in a position to do better than him uh, on that front? Um, and and yet, there's this life in Christianity. There's some li there's this life in the influence of Jesus down through the ages that comes out of this death. Um, 
he talks about uh, a real tragedy, Christianity as being born out of a real tragedy, the tragedy of the God-forsaken uh, historical Jesus. And um, we can't just dismiss it, like he says, with a theologian's sigh, because it is, in fact, the source of this life-giving power that, that the Christian faith, uh, that animates the Christian faith. Okay. Uh, I don't know if we should bring this up right now, but I'm just trying to listen to this with the listener's perspective. They're probably thinking, when did eschatology fail for Jesus? I mean, other than his death on the cross, I mean, maybe he struggled a little bit at the end, but then he was resurrected and everything was fine. <laughs> Aren't we making too big of a deal for this? What do you say? Yeah, so we're, we're going to see in, future, in some future passages that we selected here uh, that, that Jesus, that the eschatology, the specifics of his eschatology in his early ministry mm -hmm. uh, didn't even pan out in his, er, in his ministry. And he adjusted his eschatology midway. Mm -hmm. And then in his death on the cross, as this passage is describing, it needs to be adjusted once more. Uh, and that adjustment is painful. Changing your eschatology is painful. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, the life-giving power of the Christian faith comes from, the so from, from that God-forsaken source. Uh, that's this sort of paradoxical, that's the paradoxical thing that I, that I really appreciate in Albert Schweitzer for, for clarifying for us. Uh, we have to keep reading if we want to see a bit more clearly, but um but that's sort of the theme here i think okay great well let's move on uh you want to read the next one yeah this is i think this is my favorite passage in the entire book and uh and I, i'm not sure why i think it's because of the imagery he uses so this is what this is what Schweitzer has to say for this german critical study of the life of Jesus is an essential part of German religion. As of old, Jacob wrestled with the angel, so German theology wrestles with Jesus of Nazareth and will not let him go until he bless it. That is, until he will consent to serve it and will suffer himself to be drawn by the Germanic spirit into the midst of our time and our civilization. But when the day breaks, the wrestler must let him go. He will not cross the ford with us. Jesus of Nazareth will not suffer himself to be modernized. As an historic figure, he refuses to be detached from his own time. He has no answer for the question, tell us thy name in our speech and for our day. But he does bless those who have wrestled with him, so that, though they cannot take him with them, yet, like men who have seen God face to face and received strength in their souls, they go on their way with renewed courage, ready to do battle with the world and its powers. Excellent. Well, I do want to say a couple of things here, just so people understand where Schweitzer is coming from. So he was uh, raised in liberal Christianity, liberal Christianity in the day, believed that the gospel of Jesus proclaimed the universal fatherhood of Jesus, right? 
and the the universal brotherhood of man. So they really believe that that was his message. And when you read the gospels, you realize that that is actually not Jesus's message. That is not exactly what he taught his disciples, nor is he what he asked them to preach. And so what we just read right here shows us that oftentimes there's a conflict between what Jesus actually believed and practiced and what centuries or millennia later we end up believing, right? And preaching and teaching. Go ahead, Ben. Yes, that's a good summary. I think that the phrase is um, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men. That's what, that's sort of a summary of liberal theology in, in, in that time, the time that Schweitzer's writing. Um, but the gospel of the historical Jesus is so alien that we can't even bring it into the future. We can't take the gospel that Jesus preached and bring it forward to the present. Um, I'll, go, I'll be so bold as to say that Jesus couldn't even bring the gospel that he preached into the second half of his ministry when he faced some major disappointments in the middle. And, and so, and we'll get to that in the next few quotes, but uh, I think what I appreciate here is that we're starting to get a sense of the role that Jesus of Nazareth as a historical person can play in the life-giving power of an experiential uh, Christianity today. And so we would attempt to wrestle with Jesus, just like Jacob wrestled with the angel in that biblical story in Genesis. Uh, we want God to serve our purposes. We want Jesus to serve our purposes so that we can, because we see Jesus as close to God and so we can, get God on our side if we just get Jesus on our side. And, and so what Schweitzer's saying is that at a practical level, it's impossible. Like we may wrestle with Jesus and try to glean from the, from the gospels, which are four different accounts of his life, glean a unified picture of, of Jesus that will serve our purposes today is particularly that, such that Jesus will be on our side and that Jesus will bless our programs and our projects. But because he will not suffer himself to be modernized, as Schweitzer says, that project is bound to fail. Um, any sort of Jesus that we can extract from the Gospels and use for our own purposes today will not be, in fact, the historical Jesus. It'll be something of our own making, a concept of our own making. Um, as a his, he, says, as a historical figure, he refuses to be detached from his own time. He has no answer for the question, tell us thy name in our speech and for our day. It just can't be done. Uh, and I guess, I guess maybe that's one of the big values of this book, of Albert Schweitzer's work, is that it helps us to appreciate that we just can't pull Jesus out of the past and into the future without changing him so much that it's not even Jesus anymore. So that so that's sort of the negative side, and we may think, well, what's the point then? What's the value? And and in the biblical story of Jacob wrestling with the angel, Jacob is still blessed, but he's wounded in the process, and he can't, in fact, control 
uh, how God will bless him. And that's the same thing with the historical Jesus. We're blessed as we wrestle with and try to understand Jesus. And even though we can't make him go with us, make him go our way, um, we still receive a strength from, we still receive, receive some sort of strengthening from him. Uh, and what do we do with that? We do battle with the world and its powers. <laughs> that's, the, that's the end of the quote. Um, and it, it just strikes me that there are so many clergy who make a living pretending that they are successfully wrestling with the angel and forcing it to cross the river with them and that the blessing is with them and their church and their method and their book series or whatever. And it's just not true. It, it can't be done. I think that that's really helpful. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I love this passage so much. Yeah. And just so people know, he talks about German critical study. In the, I mean, Germany has been a powerhouse when it comes to theology and biblical studies for a long, long time to this day. And I would say within the last 200 years, they became very famous for doing a historical critical study of the scriptures, of theology, of church dogmas and so forth. And a lot of people are not fans, of course, because they ended up questioning, overturning a lot of beliefs. And so I've encountered many people also who are very pious and they want to embrace the creeds, they want to embrace the message of the church and anything that brings a, a critical reading or study of the scriptures, the creeds, church history and so forth, they are not in favor of. So, yeah, I mean, they really believe that the less critical your theology, the, the more holy it is. And, and they, they look down upon people who are willing to do this critical work, which is sad, but I mean, that's just where they're at. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting because the the critical, I, I guess what was happening with in this German context is that critical study of the life of Jesus was struggling with the fact that, and so we're talking about chapters 19 and 20. Well, chapter 1 through 18 is a big description of the German critical study of the life of Jesus in this book. That's what most of the book is about. And what, if you really want to know what Jesus was actually like, you have to do the critical work of, uh, that, they, that they were trying to do. But the problem is, is it's very hard to be neutral as you do that work. Because who Jesus is, what he was really like, what he was really about, the stakes are so high. Especially when, um, especially when it's going to affect your Christianity and your faith, and especially when your Christianity and your faith is tied up with your social life, how you make a living, what counts as being a good person, what counts as good politics, and so on. Uh, there's just so much that's tangled up in the so-called critical study of the life of Jesus that that basically almost anybody who puts their hand to it comes up with something new, comes up with something different, something potentially advantageous for themselves. And they're and maintaining their their present status quo. So 
I get the sense that the critical study of the life of Jesus that was happening at the time, they were trying to be as objective as possible, um, but they were trying to find a way to get to, to make Jesus speak to the present day or at the time. Uh, and Schweitzer's approach is completely different. It's to say that let Jesus be weird. Let Jesus be impractical. Let Jesus be wrong. I think that's a good example. Let Jesus be wrong about things. What if Jesus was wrong about eschatology? What if it didn't actually go as he was hoping? What then? And And what's amazing about Albert Schweitzer is that just when you think all is lost, he can point to the spiritual power that flows through the name of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and that can be accessed in the present um, through the experience of obedience and battling the world and its powers. Um, and that we can let Jesus be weird and ancient and we don't need to tidy him up for the sake of our agenda. And yet the spiritual power of Jesus is still active in the world. Um, that it's the eschatology that we cannot accept that nevertheless is the vehicle for what's of great value in him. Okay, well, I guess our next passage is briefly about eschatology. Maybe we should talk about that. This is a quick definition that Albert Schweitzer gives kind of in passing. He says, Eschatology is simply dogmatic history, history as molded by theological beliefs, which breaks in on the natural course of history and abrogates it. Yes. What should we say about this? Well, well, first, my first thought is that it's very uncomfortable to do eschatology like that today. I immediately recoil from anybody who is providing a theological interpretation of current, recent, historical events. Uh, it takes a lot of boldness to do that, and, uh, and often it feels very wrong, but, but that is what speaking eschatologically uh, is or was. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... In his time, people were struggling. What are we going to do with this weird eschatology that we find in the New Testament, right? And people have proposed different paths to bypass or to reinterpret. Uh, For example, Beaumont and others suggested that we reinterpret eschatology from an existential perspective, right? Uh, Which is fine. I think that's valid. I think it works. But I think we do have to begin always by acknowledging that when we're doing that, we're translating uh, whatever original meaning eschatology had to something else that we need today. And when I think of eschatology, I just think of the idea of God intervening, right? What does eschatology mean? God is going to intervene. In Jesus's day, John the Baptist, Jesus, and many of their followers, right? They had a really strong conviction that God was about to intervene in world history for their good and turn everything around. 
they had this two age belief, right? There's this age and then there's the coming age in which God intervenes and becomes the universal king and his kingdom turns things around for his people. And so it's it's something that we cannot have anymore. I mean, we cannot have it. I mean, if you're in a cult, I suppose you can't have that. And there are cults that do have this very strong eschatological belief that their leader is the second coming of Jesus or or something like it. But overall, for the church as a whole, this is just, this is just impossible. It's been 2,000 years. We cannot have this intense belief in the second coming. Yes, we can confess it, we can profess it, we believe it, but materially, you're not gonna get, to, you're not gonna be able to get the church to live in light of that belief and to make changes and to act like it. Like it's it's impossible, it's not gonna happen. I sometimes wonder if, um, well, I, I think that, I think that Christians are very open to uh, to the idea that Christ would return soon and quickly um, within their lifetime. And I've, as I talk to different generations at churches I've been to, I've noticed that this kind of belief skips a generation. So, so one generation expects Christ to return at any time, and then their children, if they're still in the church, think, "Nah, probably not." <laughs> And then their children after that think, oh yeah, Christ could return at any time. So I think that what that sort of oscillates, I have suspected it oscillates uh, in, in Christian circles, even today, uh, this sort of comfort level with, with taking uh, at face value sort of immediate return of Christ language or immediate coming of the coming age language in the New Testament as something that could apply right now. And then the next generation is almost inevitably weary of that kind of thing because of all of the downsides uh, of living that way, of thinking that way. Mm -hmm. But the generation after that is usually open to it. As for me, I think that I'm, I would love, I, I'm only really interested in the theology that, that is ready to hunker down for at least 10,000 years before a return of Christ. <laughs> a theology that that could that sort of says here we are and what are we going to do about the problems that we face because guess what will anybody even be here in 10,000 years to welcome Christ it's far from clear to me in our current situation that humanity will persist for another 10,000 years mm -hmm. and i think that in the nuclear age which our parents were born into um we've come to we've come to have actually well warranted reasons to fear for eschatological destruction. Uh, and then in our, our age of climate change, we also have well-founded reasons to fear that there might not be anyone around in 10,000 years. Um, and so I think that, uh, imagine if the early church had, well, what's interesting about the early church, well, we're going to read it in the next quote, but a lot of when you read the New Testament, a lot of what you read is written on the assumption that there's only like 20 years left at max ahead of us. So we're going to make all of our decisions with that assumption in mind. Um, but the fact is that there was a large amount of future ahead of them. And maybe other decisions in a slightly different ethic would have made more sense. 
So let's, uh, what, do you want to read the next passage? Sure. The whole of Christian, the whole history of Christianity down to the present day, that is to say the real inner history of it, is based on the delay of the parousia. The non-occurrence of the parousia, the abandonment of eschatology, the progress and completion of the de-eschatologizing de of religion, which has been connected therewith. It should be noted that the non-fulfillment of Matthew 10, 23 is the first postponement of the parousia. We have therefore here the first significant date in the history of Christianity. It gives to the work of Jesus a new direction, otherwise inexplicable. All right, so I think we should probably reference that scripture, Matthew 10, 23. I have a Bible open right here. I'll read that section, okay? Okay, so great. Here, Jesus basically gets his followers. He chooses 12 of them to be his special followers, the apostles, right? And then he sends them out to preach, right? And he tells them to go out and to preach in every village in Israel, every town. But then he specifically says, this is what's going to happen to you. He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For I tell you the truth, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So essentially, Jesus is saying, look, this is a really short mission. <laughs> You're not even going to finish the mission because the Son of Man is going to come down from heaven with the holy angels and it's going to be glorious and magnificent you're not going to finish the job but just help as many people as possible to be ready so they can endure to the end and be safe but before you finish that the son of man will come down in glory all right any thoughts on that scripture yes okay so i think that it's safe to say that matthew 10 and the passage we just you just described is the central passage for Albert Schweitzer's interpretation of Jesus and he brings this up in his book out of my life and thought as well um, and for me it's always been something I glossed over something I didn't really pay attention to something that didn't matter so why was this passage invisible to me uh, for many years well number one uh, I have had the perspective that Jesus needed to be right about all things theological and eschatological in order for him to be worthy of Christian worship or worthy of worship. Uh, and Albert Schweitzer just says, look, look, he was wrong. <laughs> he, he was wrong. He expected to send the disciples out and for that to usher in the end of the age and for basically the whole coming of the kingdom of God to be complete before they finished their mission. And he was wrong. Uh, I couldn't see that though before. I couldn't, I couldn't entertain that thought but I'm able to entertain that now. Um, mm -hmm. What I want to say about it though, is that I still, and I think this is why I'm so excited about Albert Schweitzer is that his uh, work has helped me to see how Jesus can still be um, 
the revelation, how there can still be such a thing as the revelation of God in Christ, how Jesus can be worthy of worship uh, from the Christian perspective, and how this doesn't actually detract from that at all. The worthiness of Jesus for Christian worship um, doesn't have to do with him having a particularly correct eschatology, because as of Matthew 10, we already see an eschatology put on the table and then fails to meet uh, expectations. That midway through his ministry, he's already faced a major disappointment and not a disappointment with other people, a disappointment with God. God hasn't done what Jesus of Nazareth expected God to do in Matthew 10, 23. It, it, it went differently. And Jesus adapts. And I think that in seeing how Jesus adapts in Albert Swartz's portrait, we get to see the movement of the Spirit of God um, from an experiential theology perspective in the man, Jesus Christ, in a way that is something that we could actually seek for ourselves and imitate for ourselves as we face disappointments with what we expect God to do as well. I think that's huge, the idea that in this episode, we can actually imitate Jesus, right? This is something we can do. We're going to experience disappointment in God and how God works. And we can adjust our expectations and still be faithful and move forward, make adjustments, right? That's huge. And the problem is that a lot of us read the Gospels for years, think that, you know, Jesus knows everything. And therefore, we, we, we missed the humanity of Jesus, right? We missed the humanity of Jesus. He was kind of learning on the go when it comes to many things. And it's impossible, really, for a human being to know how, how the end is going to come about. Just like it is impossible for a human being to know how God created the world out of nothing, as Christian theology, by and large, seems to state, right? So these are not things that we have access to, that we can touch, that we can explore. And Jesus is modeling a very human way of believing and following God. And I think that's very helpful. Okay, well... Let's read the next passage, and uh, this passage leads into, or we'll, the second half of it is probably the most famous passage in the book. And it's a, remember, tragedy is what we're talking about, the tragedy that gives birth to the Christian faith. Um, this is what we're talking about here. And I think what we want to appreciate is that Schweitzer isn't just saying Jesus is not um, someone who knows everything, because look at the mistakes he's making, look at the things he was wrong about. Um, he's also talking about the greatness of Jesus. And, and I think that when we, when Christians want to worship Jesus, they want to worship means sort of magnifying some greatness in some sense, like we're looking to Jesus, we see something great, and we dwell on that and praise that, or draw from that. Uh, but what if the thing that we think was so great wasn't even the real source of greatness so finding out what the source of 
what the actual source of the greatness of Jesus is, is really important for Christian worship, that we're actually worshiping in truth, uh, in spirit and in truth, and not just worshiping what we would prefer Jesus to be like. Uh, so having Jesus vulnerable in this way, vulnerable to disappointment in Matthew 10, 23, and then vulnerable to disappointment on the cross through the God forsaken cry, mm-hmm. it's redirecting our attention to what the greatness is in uh, Jesus Christ. Okay, so some would say, and I'm, I, I can't help but think of Karl Marx. I've never read Karl Marx, so, but I get the impression from him that he has this his picture of history as like a series of inevitable revolutions, that this will inevitably lead to that, which will inevitably lead to that. Uh, mm-hmm. So in contrast to that, what Schweitzer wants to say is that Jesus is not the inevitable outcome of his time and place. Jesus is thoroughly located in his time and place and he shares the eschatological expectations of his of people who lived in his time and place but there's nothing about his time and place that that guarantees that a jesus would arise and so what we see in him is this unprovoked and and frankly uncalled for greatness uh tremendously great personality so let me read the passage Here's what Schweitzer says. He says, what is really remarkable about this wave of apocalyptic enthusiasm, this is in the time of Jesus, is the fact that it was called forth not by external events, but solely by the appearance of two great personalities. And it subsides with their disappearance without leaving among the people generally any trace except a feeling of hatred towards the new sect. Let me just unpack that for a second. So he's talking about Jesus and John the Baptist, and he's saying that, yes, there is apocalyptic enthusiasm. Yes, there is people investing in this eschatology, but it's you can't explain it by, um, you can't explain Jesus and John the Baptist. They appear out of nowhere. They leverage the eschatology of their people. They form new communities. And then after that, everybody hates those new communities. They're not, this is not the inevitable way it had to go. Okay, let me continue. Schweitzer writes, Schweitzer continues, he says, there is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, lays hold of the wheel of the world, to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. Yeah, I think this is, like you said, one of the most famous passages from this book. And I think in a short passage, it it gives you a picture of Jesus' experience, right? 
what he expected versus what actually transpired with his life. Jesus is someone who grew up among a people who had expectations for what God would do. But then he has the tenacity to also believe that he will pull the lever, which will bring these expectations to pass. That history is a wheel and that it is upon him to pull and turn that wheel and even to jump upon it and make it turn. So everybody who's a young person has ideals. I mean, you and I remember what that was like to some extent. <laughs> the, but very few of us think that we can single-handedly spin the wheel of history and make not only that to bring history to a close to believe that once our work is done there'll be nothing left undone incredible this is the this is who jesus christ was this is what the historical jesus was like a giant a giant person who came out of nowhere and of course he speaks the language of his people he speaks and believes through the eschatology of his people but he's the only one there who thinks that he can bring it about himself um nope there's nobody like that amongst his peers and and but then the other part of this passage is that this wheel does turn and it crushes him that what he expects to do when he turns the wheel of history turns out differently and he he finds himself god abandoned um and that his hopes his eschatological hopes he's destroyed by them and they are destroyed by him so how can we have this dynamite of a person whose influence goes down through history unto us uh, and yet who whose primary way of understanding the world and their primary way of us understanding him is through his eschatology and yet he's destroyed the very thing his eschatology that brought him to us it's it's this is albert schweitzer at his best these insights that he has yeah excellent very good all right i think uh we should move to this next passage i think this one's going to answer questions that people are probably forming in their minds. I'll read this one. A few pages later, it says, it was with a view to this initial movement that he chose his disciples. They are not his helpers in the work of teaching. We never see them in that capacity. He did not prepare them to carry on that work after his death. The very fact that he chooses just 12 shows that it is a dogmatic idea which he has in mind. He chooses them as those who are destined to hurl the firebrand into the world and are afterwards as those who have been the comrades of the unrecognized Messiah before he came to his kingdom to be his associates in ruling and judging it. 
in the secret of his passion, which Jesus reveals to the disciples at, Caesar, at Caesarea Philippi, the pre-Messianic the pre tribulation is for others set aside, abolished, and concentrated upon himself alone. And that in the form that they are fulfilled in his own passion and death at Jerusalem. That was the new conviction that had dawned upon him. He must suffer for others that the kingdom might come. Yes, so the this is all this all pivots around Matthew 10 in a way. Uh, so Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples expecting, and he, they are his firebrand. This is the phrase that, that Schweitzer uses, that he's going to throw this flame, flaming stick, this firebrand out into the world. That's what his disciples are to him. And he's going to, and that's going to burn it all down and the end times will be, will come. Um, but it doesn't happen. So I'm going to read the next passage here. Um, says, when, in accordance with his commission, by sending forth the disciples with their message, he hurled the firebrand, which should kindle the fiery trials of the last time, the flame went out. He had not succeeded in sending a sword on earth and stirring up the conflict. And until the time of trial had come, the coming of the kingdom and his own manifestation of the Son of Man were impossible. So this is the Matthew 10 disappointment, that he throws the flame and it goes out and he needs to evaluate what this means for for god and his original expectation was that all of the elect all of the disciples all of his followers all who would be saved would be saved through suffering um, but when uh but when his original plan to turn the wheel of history doesn't actually cause that wheel to turn at all he comes to a new conviction, which is the past, the second part of the passage that you read, that no, God doesn't require his, all the people of his, of his company to, be, to suffer. It just requires Jesus to suffer, that it's only through the suffering of Jesus that the end will come. And this is where how, what it means for him to throw himself upon the wheel of history. Um, the wheel doesn't turn by the suffering of the elect it's going to turn by the suffering of the son of man alone. This is what he, this is the development before and after Matthew 10 that Schweitzer points to. And this leads to another interesting thing about the historical Jesus, which is that on Schweitzer's picture, Jesus becomes the substitute. His suffering becomes a substitute for the suffering of his disciples. He doesn't substitute in his own mind for the suffering of future believers, which is what we, which is what many Christians believe today. They believe that somehow the suffering of Jesus is in their place or on their behalf. As far as the historical Jesus was concerned, he was suffering in the place or on behalf of his living disciples at the time, because he had expected them to suffer as well before Matthew 10. So that's a, just an interesting side uh, side discussion. Yeah, yeah it, this brings about 
questions such as, okay, so maybe that's the, the historical Jesus stuff, but what did God think about what Jesus did? Of course, that's a separate question, but we're not going to go into that, okay? Right, yeah, and yeah, okay, we don't have to go into that, but but, but from the from our perspective, uh, kind of alongside Jesus, what we're often dealing with is disappointment, and we're all trying to figure out, well, what is God thinking? How come it's not going as I thought it would go? <laughs> uh, so we are kind of alongside Albert Schweitzer's Jesus portrait um, when we ask those questions. That's what it's all about. Do you want to read that the next passage that you, I think you selected it? Yeah. Okay, so having painted this picture of the historical Jesus, having talked about how he died, now we're going to start to talk about what happened after his death and how did he come to mean so much for his followers and his church and for us today. So we're going to pivot in that direction starting now. So Jesus means something to our world because a mighty spiritual force streams forth from him and flows through our time also. This fact can neither be shaken nor confirmed by any historical discovery. It is the solid foundation of Christianity. Okay, well, I think this passage is very significant because, again, it, it's reassuring to know that history and the study of history cannot hurt Jesus. Okay. Uh, here, Schweitzer says that, yeah, people can try to figure out who Jesus was. They'll come up with different portraits. But... Uh, Ultimately, he's not accessible, and he cannot be he cannot be uh, destroyed. What he did is going to endure because his spirit keeps flowing through time. He keeps touching people. He keeps uh, filling people and enabling them empowering them to make a difference in the world and that's how christianity continues to move and he says that this is the solid foundation of christianity so he says that the historical christ is not a, is, is not the solid foundation what do you make of that uh, so albert schweitzer is firmly like this passage here is firmly in the experiential theology camp if you if you want to have a camp <laughs> it the it's it's the spiritual power of jesus today that is real and that is the solid foundation of christianity uh, i'm not sure exactly how to put this um so i don't think that we want to be anti-historical jesus in the sense that we want to free the Christian faith from the historical Jesus. I don't know if that's what Schweitzer was intending to do. Um, what, I, what I get, what I see him doing is painting a portrait of Jesus as um, that's realistic. Like 
of course Jesus is somebody who believes in the eschatology of his of his people and of it at that time and place. Of course he thinks like somebody in his time and place. And yet we can see this what I think the word that Schweitzer uses in other places like an imperious ruler, somebody who not only thinks that history will come to a close, that's the belief of everybody in his time and place, but who believes that he's the one that's going to bring history to a close. Well, that's something special. So I don't, I, I see a great deal of value in the historical Jesus portrait that Schweitzer paints. Um, but what I, but what I also gather from this is that it's not the teaching of Jesus that's matter that matters. It's not the sayings of Jesus that matters. It's not the particular eschatology of Jesus that matters. It's the spiritual power that is behind all of those things. And that spiritual power doesn't even require translation. It doesn't even need to be described using words. Uh, it is, it just is, and it and it's present and it's past and it's future. And so we can try to keep up in our descriptions and, and modify how we describe things and translate. Um, but I think Schweitzer's done us a great service by pointing us towards that spiritual power and away from the particular eschatology of Jesus. So when you read Matthew chapter 10 and you say, well, what does that mean to me today? Uh, well, it doesn't even mean to Jesus in the second half of his ministry what it meant to him when he said it. He's already moved on to a new perspective on what God's planning to do. Um, and, and so so we're free to follow the spirit of God in a new way once we allow the particularities to be particular and not universal. Great. Excellent. All right. For our next passage, we're going to talk about Paul. So the Apostle Paul is making an entrance here. Let's see how he helps us. Go for it. Okay. Schweitzer writes, um, we are experiencing what Paul experienced in the very moment when we were coming nearer to the historical Jesus than the men had ever come before. And we're already stretching out our hands to draw him in our own time. We've been obliged to give up the attempt to acknowledge and acknowledge our failure in that paradoxical saying, if we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth we know him no more. And further, we must be prepared to find that the historical knowledge of the personality and life of Jesus will not be a help, but perhaps even an offense to religion. But the truth is, it is not Jesus as historically known, but Jesus as spiritually arisen within men, who is significant for our time, and it can help, and it can help it. Not the historical Jesus, but the spirit which goes forth from him, and in the spirits of men strives for a new influence and rule, is that which overcomes the world. Yeah. So here we have the Apostle Paul introduced, because of course, the Apostle Paul is probably the most important figure in Christian theology. And the Apostle Paul, we know, of course, that he never met the historical Jesus, right? So he's the perfect person to bring in here. So he actually right. never met the historical Jesus. He only met the risen Christ. And, you know, he had the Holy Spirit and Jesus apparently appeared to him in a vision and spoke to him and so forth. 
But Paul never met the historical Jesus. We have never met the historical Jesus. We will never meet the historical Jesus. But yet, like Paul, by means of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Spirit of Jesus, we too can have access to this tremendous power that energize the ministry and the work of Jesus. And I think this is exactly right. If we understand this, we realize that the foundation of Christianity is ultimately unshakable because you cannot shackle the spirit. The spirit moves and it cannot be in prison, in an institution, in a religion, in a creed. The spirit is always moving. Oh, that's it for me. Ben? Good. Oh. Okay, so how about how about we go to the last uh, the last quote we have here? I'll skip one. Um, does that sound okay? Yeah. Okay. So here's the last quote we have to share, and this is actually the last couple sentences in the in the in the book. This is the way Albert Schweitzer concludes his book. He writes, um, "Jesus comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old, by the lakeside. He came to those men." who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the task which he has to fulfill in our time. He commands, and those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings, which they will pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. So I think it's fair to count Albert Schweitzer among the experiential theologians because of this passage, that having just written some 400 odd pages on trying to recover the historical Jesus through careful analysis of the gospel passages and trying to harmonize and criticize and parse and select, um, as valuable as all that is, uh, Jesus is known through obedience, through the experience of toiling alongside, uh, toiling in the power of his spirit towards his purposes, um, and not through an appropriation of a particular set of sayings that he, that he gave or, or through a particular portrait of him that we've constructed uh, through our scholarly work. Yeah, I think that's the perfect conclusion. Again, this is the last thing he writes in the book. And uh, like I said at the very beginning, we cannot do justice to the breadth of everything that you find in this book. It's, it's tremendous, tremendous work. We just shared a little bit from the last two chapters. Our hope is that what we have read and shared and talked about piqued your interest that, that these passages um, motivate you to find a copy, a PDF or a print version and just read this amazing work. 
there's so much good in here. And I think it's always helpful to know how the book ends. The book ends with a challenge. The book ends with a challenge to follow Jesus. Wow. Isn't that amazing? The book ends with a challenge to follow Jesus in actual discipleship by doing what he wants us to do in our day and age. And he promises that if we accept the tasks here for us, Jesus too will reveal himself to us just like he revealed himself to Paul and to many other saints in the history of the church. So I think this is a tremendous challenge. I think we should oh, we should definitely follow Jesus in concrete material ways, not just by, you know, praising him or ascribing glory to him or saying that he was glorious and amazing and the best. We need to acknowledge him in our actual lives. And Oliver Schweitzer, again, if you study his life, I mean, he did just that. He did just that. And I think that's what makes this book all the more amazing. Any parting words, uh, Ben? I'm just reminded at the end of this uh, episode of um, Soren Kierkegaard in his book, Practice in Christianity. He has this concept called, uh, where he has this axiom or concept where he says, Christ in his exaltation is Christ in his abasement. And that is, if you want to worship Jesus, naturally you're drawn to this exalted figure. That's who you want to worship. But God has exalted Christ in his abasement. God has exalted the crucified one. So if you want to worship Jesus, we are immediately redirected towards the crucified Jesus. And I think Albert Schweitzer paints us a wonderful portrait of the crucified Jesus for our consideration. Somebody who faced disappointment, somebody whose eschatology um, led him to be surprised at what God was actually doing, uh, and somebody who yielded to these changes, uh, and, and someone who trusted his father, uh, despite the deepest of disappointments. And, and so, you, you mentioned that worshiping Jesus isn't just ascribing glory to him. I, I think we, if we want to worship Jesus, we have to look, we have to have a grip on the limits that, that he actually had and realizes that when we worship Jesus, we're not worshiping the eschatology depicted in the New Testament. We're not worshiping a plan of salvation detailed in the New Testament or detailed in the Gospels. Those have been destroyed through the actual events that have transpired. Um, and yet there's still power there to be had. That uh, We're actually drawn closer to God through being willing to look Christ, look upon Christ in his abasement, look upon uh, Jesus and his disappointment. There's something there uh, that, that was invisible to me for most of my Christian life. And I, I do thank this book for making it, uh, for opening it up to me, honestly. Excellent. Well, Jesus was faithful to the end, but this book shows us that he had to be flexible in his understanding of the working of God. And I think that's a really good reminder for us. Let's be faithful to the end, 
So let's be flexible with that theology. Let's be flexible with how God works today. Well put. Thank you, Thank you everyone. We will chat again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.